Father, we thank you for this wondrous mystery. Lord, as we examine ourselves, as we look within ourselves and see the sin that is so permeated into our lives, Lord, we, we sin without even thinking about it. We rebel against your great name. We seek our own way. We go astray. And yet, Father, the mystery that we see today is that your Son came for those who hated Him so that He may make them those who love Him. And Father, this wondrous mystery is seen in the work of Christ on the cross, in His substitutionary suffering and atonement for our sins, and in the declaration of His victory as He rose from the dead and is now at this moment seated at Your right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. So that now we are no longer objects of Your wrath but we are recipients of Your grace. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are Your children, and Christ is our older brother. Father, what a wondrous mystery this is. May that reality captivate our hearts. May we spend every moment of every day glorying in the salvation we have in Your Son. And Father, today as we look to Your Word, may we quiet our hearts, may we put aside the concerns of other things in our life, and Lord, may Your Word be the sword of the Spirit. May you use it skillfully to cut away the sinful cancer in our life so that we may live to your glory. Father, we pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3. Again, we're continuing on with our study of the minor prophets, particularly the last four minor prophets. We're actually moving at a pretty, a pretty good pace. Uh, I'm surprised that, we're, that we are where we are this morning in Zephaniah. And as we've been looking at Zephaniah, we've been seeing Zephaniah as a prophet who speaks of both wrath, the punishment of God for sin, but also a prophet who speaks of great joy. And truly, you cannot have joy apart from understanding what it is you have been saved from. When you see the magnitude of your sin and the magnitude of the punishment that it deserves, and then you see the glory of salvation, there is nothing that we can do but shout out joy to the world. The Lord is come. What we also find that Zephaniah's prophecy is primarily focused on is not looking to the nations or looking to the unsaved outside of God's people, but he is a prophet sent to Judah, a prophet sent to 
reveal and to expose the rebellion of God's people. And particularly here in chapter 3, we see him zeroing in on the rebellion of God's people. We live in a day and age where rebellion is glamorized. Um, You think of it in popular society and popular culture. You think of that, that James Dean movie. I think it was James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. Was that James Dean? I think it was James Dean. You know, you think of, uh, of the, the Star Wars movies, which are so popular. And, and who are the good guys in the Star Wars movies? They're the rebels. We look back at our society today, and it seems that pushing back against an anti-establishment idea, pushing back and, and rebelling against things is sort of the mantra that we see in society today. We resonate with the rebel. There's something appealing and attractive to, about being the rebel. Now, why is that? The reality is because deep down we ourselves are rebels. Rebellion is not a thing to be celebrated. It is a thing which brings woe. Look at the first word of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1. What does he say? Woe. So Zephaniah is going to come and he's going to look at the people of God. He's going to indict them as rebels and he is going to call them to turn from their rebellion, from their hard-hearted rebellion, and to throw themselves in full dependence upon the Lord. Look with me, Zephaniah chapter 3. We'll read through verse 8. Woe! To her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning He shows forth His justice, and each dawn He does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make All their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy... All the earth shall be consumed. 
God is very clear as to how He deals with rebellion. And in this passage, I want us to see two main things. We're going to see rebellion described, and then we're going to see rebellion's cure. And so let's begin by looking at how God describes the rebellion of His people here in Zephaniah chapter 3. And the first thing we see is that this is a constant pattern. It's a constant pattern. Notice again what he says in verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious. There's a clear understanding here that Israel as a nation persisted in rebellion. The word that's used here to describe rebellion is a word generally used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel's rebellion. It's not generally used against the nations and the heathen, but it's used of God's own people. And in some regards, that makes sense because God's own people are meant to be ruled by the Lord. And they, the other nations are not a part of that covenant community. So in one sense, they are just doing what they know, but God's people should know better. And yet, over and over again, we find that Israel is a rebellious people. Its presence is clearly seen at what's known as the incident at Meribah. We've heard of the Scriptures describe the waters of Meribah. The people there were complaining and groaning about the deliverance that God had brought them. He brought them into a wilderness and they were thirsty and, and, and they had seen God do miraculous things, but yet they thought Him incapable of providing the water that they needed. And of course, water flowed from a rock. But in that instance, as Israel's own complaining and whining, it actually infected Moses himself. And instead of striking the rock, he spoke to it. Or vice versa. I might have that backwards. But notice what is said here in Numbers. Numbers 27, 13 through 14. Moses speaking to the people. He says, When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. He's telling Moses as he is going to see Israel. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land. Why is Moses not able to enter the promised land? Because Moses rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen. When the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes, these are the waters of Meribah and Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. And Moses himself, here in the, the account itself, looks at the assembly. He cries out to them, and he comes before the rock, and he calls them what? Rebels. Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? It's important, I think, to note what lies at the heart of rebellion. And we saw it in the previous passage. It is a failure to recognize who the Lord is. It is a failure to uphold Him as holy. And so we begin down the path of rebellion when we fail to consider and know who God truly is. When He becomes common or unimportant in our lives, we are heading straight towards turning from Him. 
The psalmist in Psalm 78 warned Israel to not repeat this pattern. He says that they should set their and that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. God comes and and the psalmist implores Israel to look to the word of God. It is that which is to call them and to live instead of stubbornness, responsiveness to God's word. Instead of failing obedience, allegiance, steadfast allegiance to Yahweh in heart and soul and mind and deed. And instead of faithlessness, faithfulness in all that they did. It was to be the opposite of what their fathers had done. But now we come to the reign of Josiah. We come to a people, to a nation that has already seen the northern kingdom taken captive. We come to Jerusalem, the holy city. Have they learned from their forefathers? Have they heeded the warnings? And Zephaniah's words, which are the words of the Lord, is you are still a rebellious city. You are still a rebellious nation. After a thousand years of the nation of Israel's existence, they had not progressed one bit. They were still the same rebellious people of the wilderness of Zen. And boy, that's certainly true of the church today, is it not? In fact, we read of these Old Testament stories. We read of the accounts of God's people. And they are given for a particular purpose. Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they were all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was Not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. They rebelled. Now these things took place as what? Examples for who? For us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Rebellion is the constant pattern of God's people. And it is not what God desires from His people. Over and over again, the prophets speak of the grace and the mercy and the love of God poured out to them over and over again. And over and over again, God is treated with contempt by His own people. And the same thing happens in churches today, likely in this church. Has not God bestowed upon us abundant grace. And yet how often do you respond to that grace with rebellion and treason against your Lord? 
It is a consistent pattern seen in Israel, and it is a pattern seen in the church today. And rebellion that is a pattern within God's people that consistently there, it defiles us. Notice what he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Israel's rebellion brought about a result so that they were no longer to be the city, they were no longer acting as the city set on a hill that was to be the light to the nations. Instead, they had become a soiled and useless town, blighted by their sin. The idea here of defiled is the idea of polluted, of ruined and dirty and filthy. In fact, this term at its very base meaning has the idea of redeeming something, and it's often used in a positive way as having a claim over something. That's the idea. But when it's used in this negative sense, the point is that the claim is not made by God over His people, but rather sin and rebellion has the claim over them. Instead of the marks of redemption being stamped on His priceless purchase, He instead sees the claim of sin on His people. That which Christ bought with his precious blood the people that he led out of Egypt, the people that he provided for with manna from heaven, the people who he drove out the nations before them, those people that are his are soiled and filthy with their rebellion. Instead of the marks of God, they see, God sees only the marks of of sin. And this defilement reaches to every aspect and every strata of Israel's um, society. It brings corruption upon them. Look at verse uh, 1 and again the, the third statement there. It is known as the oppressing city. This is a scandal. For Jerusalem, which is supposed to be known as the city of God, the holy city. Zephaniah, God himself describes it as not the holy city, but as the oppressing city. It was to be the place where God's foot touched the ground. That's the imagery that God uses to describe the holy city, to describe the temple. It was to be that the place where Yahweh dwelt where he lived among his people. It was to be a place of righteousness and justice. In fact, Psalm 89 speaks of this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your faith, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. This is what Israel, this is what Jerusalem was meant to be. But instead of being a city known for its justice and its equity, Israel is known as a city of corruption. It's now filled with nothing but injustice. Notice what Jeremiah says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. The city 
that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. This corrupt pattern infected the political leaders. We see this in verses 3 and 4. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Rather than seeking the good of those to whom they had been given to care for and to, to, to look over as servants of the people, they exacted their power for the purpose of exploiting the people. The description here is, is vivid. Roaring lions. That term is used in the New Testament to refer to the devil. And when the devil walks about roaring, what is he wanting to do? Devour. They're described as midnight wolves, evening wolves, who attack the flock when the shepherd is asleep, who attack the flock when there's, when there's no one to protect it. And when they attack the flock, they leave nothing behind. They squeeze Israel with their injustice for their own purposes. But it's not just among the political elite, it's also among the religious elite. The prophets, verse 4, are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. They were fickle. They would speak not the truth, but they would speak what other people wanted to hear. And this has been the problem of humanity from forever. Remember the, the, the serpent in the garden? He told Eve exactly what she wanted to hear. You will not surely die. She saw this fruit, she took it, she wanted permission to take it, and the devil was the false prophet that told her, go ahead, it's okay. Paul warns the church that there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers, not that teach the truth, but teach what? That which suits their passions. And so we have today fickle teachers, just as Israel did in those days. Fickle prophets who instead of standing and proclaiming the word of the Lord, stand and proclaim that which people want to hear. And they will fill arenas with people. People like to hear what they want to hear. But God comes in His word and He gives His word. He gives the clarity of what He has proclaimed. Not only have the prophets been corrupted, but the priests themselves, those who are entrusted with the holy things of the Lord, those who serve before the Lord in the temple, they have taken what is holy and they have made it profane. And as a result, they do violence to the law. So this constant pattern that brings defiling upon Israel that is a pattern of corruption, it is a stubborn pattern. Look at what he says in verse 2. This rebellious, defiled, and oppressing city, they listen to no voice. They accept no corruption. Or no, I'm sorry, no correction. 
They do not trust in the Lord and they do not draw near to her God. They do not listen to the word of the Lord. Rebellion is driven by a rejection of God's word. The stubbornness of the human heart time and time again, God describes as his people turning from what he says. God, throughout the prophets, you can almost sense, not that God gets frustrated, but you can almost sense in the way he describes it, his frustration. Look at what he says in Hosea chapter 4. He says that Israel is like a stubborn heifer. I don't think we have a lot of farmers here today. Anyone have to deal with their heifer this morning? But you know what? Cows can be really stubborn. Cows can stand and they won't move a bit. And God is describing Israel like a stubborn heifer. Israel is stubborn. He says, how, how am I going to feed them like lambs in a good pasture when they're stubborn like these big cows that won't move? Isaiah elsewhere describes them, the Lord describes them as obstinate, that their neck is an iron sinew. Right, what's important about the sinews in your neck? They need to be what? Flexible. So you can turn your head. So you can see different things. If, you're, if your sinews are iron, that means they're not moving and your forehead is brass. Talk about a hard-headed people. And we have to recognize that rebellion and stubbornness go hand in hand. Notice what God says at the beginning of Israel's life. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because you're righteous, because you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And that rebellion is seen in this passage through their Denial of God's word. They do not listen to any voice. They do not accept any correction. I'm sure your parents have had times like this with your children, right? Where they are stubborn and unyielding. They like to battle their parents' wills, right? Who's, who's going to win this battle? And no matter time and time again, you tell them over and over again not to do or what to do, and they disregard your word, and you feel like pulling your hair out, right? And every time we persist in sin, every time we disregard the word of God, every time you come into a service or you come away from your devotions and you have listened to or heard the voice of God, but you disregard it, that same sense is what God is trying to get across here. We are just like stubborn, rebellious children. Not only do we not listen to the voice of the Lord, we don't accept His correction. We don't listen to the discipline that God gives them. The term used here for correction has the idea of discipline or chastening. Listen, we should give thanks for the Lord's chastening. You know what it shows us? 
It shows us that He loves us. When we're disciplined, when we're chastened, it is God saying, I will not permit you to continue in that which is going to destroy you. Praise God for His chastening. But how often are we like Israel and God's chastening us and we're not going to listen to it? So often the chastening of God becomes a means for us to turn away from Him rather than to turn to Him. Not only has their stubbornness seen in their disregard of God's Word or their rejection of His correction, they have gotten to a point where they do not even fear the power of the Lord. Notice what's said in verses 6 and 7. Who is the God of Israel? Look at what he says in 6. I am the God. I have cut off nations. So Israel is is fearful of all these, these strong, powerful empires around them. And God's like, I can cut them off like that. They have amazing, powerful gears of war. God says, I'll put them in ruins. I'll go into their homeland and I'll lay waste to their streets. I will desolate these nations so that no one walks in them. I'll make them completely desolate so that nobody lives there anymore. The great nations, the the great cities that, that captivated the entire ancient world would be laid to dust. And God is the one who did it. We saw that described in chapter 2. And so the response to see the great, awesome power of God is to fear Him. And that's what God says in verse 7. I said, surely you will fear me. When you see what I can do, surely you will see that there is no one greater to be feared than the Lord. Surely now you accept my correction. You'll realize that my discipline given by love is much better than my wrath given against your sin. Surely you'll recognize so that you won't become like these nations, so that your dwelling would not be cut off. That everything I have promised, everything that I've appointed for you, that you can come into and know by turning from your rebellion. But notice what Israel in their stubbornness does. Instead of this driving them to fear the Lord, it makes them all the more eager to make how many of their deeds corrupt? All. You know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And what is Israel doing? They are loving sin with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, and all their strength. Everything about them has become corrupt and so they do not respond to the grace of the Lord throughout all of the millennia between Meribah and this prophecy a thousand years God is gracious to his people he saves them. He delivers them. Even though the pattern over and over again is they're going to go after God's. God's going to discipline them. They're going to repent. He'll bless them. And then they become complacent and they go back to their gods. You see that in Judges over and over and over again. So that at the end of that book, you have a terrible thing that almost rips the nation apart because of their sin. 
And you have the consideration of the author of the book of Judges saying that everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And that continues. There's time of blessing with David and Solomon. But soon after Israel's rebellion, this cycle continues over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're stubborn in their rebellion. And so God puts this indictment through the prophet Jeremiah. Has a nation changed its gods? Even though those gods don't exist. You don't go to Babylon and see Babylon putting Dagon aside or, or, or putting, putting their Ashtaroths aside. You don't go to the Philistines and see them putting their gods aside. You, you don't see the Ninevites turning aside from their gods. They're loyal to their gods. It's unheard of that a nation would change their gods. And these gods, Dagon, Ashtaroth, the gods of the Ninevites, they don't exist. And then God says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And so what, what, is the, what is the conclusion that God would have us reach when we see the rebellion of His people? Be appalled. And He calls the heavens to bear witness to this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Now, lest we think that Zephaniah's words only are descriptive of God's people in the Old Testament, let us look at the church throughout history and we can see the same cycle committed over and over and over again. Lest you think that it's just the church in general, look within your own heart. How often have you disregarded the discipline of the Lord? How often has your heart gone after other gods? Jesus comes to give us life and to give it abundantly, he says to the woman at the well that if you ask of me, I will give you water that wells up within you, springing to eternal life. And yet how often do we seek satisfaction from any number of things in this life? Our possessions, our relationships, our careers, our finances. When God indicts Israel, when He speaks of Judah, when He speaks of Jerusalem as the rebellious city, that same description fits us. So what are we to do? Zephaniah's description is stark, vivid, and full of darkness. Certainly, the opening word is appropriate. Woe. Woe. But in the midst of this, in the midst of pointing out to Israel what they're not doing, 
we are reminded of what we can do to find the cure for rebellion. And the first thing that we see is the clear cure for rebellion. It is the righteousness of the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 5. After describing this, this profane and fickle and corrupt group of leaders in Israel, the political leaders and the religious leaders, he says that even though they are doing violence to the law, there is a reality that there is one who is righteous, and it is the Lord. The Lord within her is righteous. Israel's corruption is so deep that it's not possible for them to look within to find that righteousness, but rather they must look outside of themselves to the one who dwells within them, the one who is their, is their God, to the Lord alone. He is the righteousness of His people. That is where their hope must be settled. If they look within themselves, they will see the truth of Isaiah's indictment that all our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. That the pollution of our sin has so soiled us that we are unredeemable looking to ourselves. But there is a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. They, if they turn from that pollution and they come to the one who is righteous, the one who is always righteous, there is a cure for their rebellion. Notice what he says that is so different about the Lord. Injustice and oppression, which are typical of Jerusalem, are not found in him. He does no injustice. In fact, he says every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. As the sun rises each morning, so does the justice of God. It never fails. And so from the get-go, we find that our only hope to turn from our rebellion is to turn to the Lord who is completely apart from sin. And so as we see God's righteousness as the first step into our understanding of rebellion's cure, the second thing we see is God's judgment, the judgment of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Notice what he says to this rebellious city. The city that is full of corruption. The city that's not listening to his voice, not accepting his correction. Notice what he says. Wait for me. This is not a waiting for, waiting for the salvation of the Lord. This is a waiting because there will be a day, he says, when I rise up to seize the prey. Those who set themselves against the Lord are viewed here as the Lord as a hunter and the rebels as prey. And God does not miss when He sets the arrows of His judgment against those who rebel against Him. He will rise up and seize the prey. This is what His decision is. He's going to gather Nations. He's going to assemble kingdoms. The nations that Israel 
had turned to their gods, the kingdoms that Israel had trusted in rather than trusting in the Lord. He's going to take them all together and he is going to have a burning anger and fire of jealousy. And in that moment, he's going to pour out his indignation on them so that how much of the earth will be consumed? All of it. We've talked about, we talked about this last week. And why does, why does Zephaniah, why do the prophets speak so vividly and viscerally about the judgment of God? And it is to call his people to turn from their rebellion. To recognize what the consequence of sin is. But there's also a reality too that brings hope to God's people. That God is a God of justice. How many of you have sat by and seen things in the news and wondered, where are you, Lord, in this? When terrorists flew planes into towers on 9-11, we can cry out, where is the God of justice? When Hamas entered Israel and slaughtered women and children and babies. Where is the God of justice? When you see injustice baked into societal aspects, when you see people for no other reason than their skin color being marginalized, where is the God of justice? When you see the prosperity of the wicked. When you see evil seeming to advance and goodness seeming to retreat, you cry out, where is the God of justice? Jeremiah had this same expression. Righteous are you, O Lord. I know you're righteous. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Boy, I, I tell you, these are some of the most, the most clearly relevant words of the Old Testament for us today because I think we all have asked this question. Jeremiah goes on, you plant them. They take root. They grow and produce fruit. You're near in their mouth and far from their heart. Then Jeremiah reminds himself, You, O Lord, know me. You see me. And you're testing my heart towards you. The prosperity of the wicked is a way that God looks to us to, to strengthen our faith and to say, How much do you trust my justice? And so Jeremiah cries out, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. And Zephaniah reminds us of the judgment that God will bring on all those who oppress, all those who exploit, all those who turn from him. So how are we to respond to this? 
The Lord is the only hope for righteousness. His judgment is as sure as the rising of the sun. What should be the response of rebels? It's very simple. Repentance and faith. When Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, He called people to do two things. Repent and believe the gospel. Notice what Zephaniah points out here. First of all, we see repentance seen in the end of verse 2. What is it that Israel is not doing? They are not drawing near to the Lord. They are not turning from their sin and turning to Him. The Word of God that is given to them, that they they are rejecting, the the words of chapter 1, verse 7, to be silent before the Lord God and to listen to what He says, that is the first step to repentance. Listening to His voice and accepting the correction. God corrects us so that we would turn from Him. This is why God strikes His people. Joel 2, 11-12, The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord. What are we to do? Return to Me. With all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And that means that these detestable things that have defiled us and polluted us, we must remove them from our lives to turn to the Lord. Notice what he says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in Him. And in Him they shall glory. And then we have the the verse that we've been using as a theme for this entire study of the minor prophets. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. That hard-hearted, stubborn heart, rip it up. Let the Word of God permeate. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Repent and turn to Me. The only other alternative is that My wrath would go forth like a fire and it will burn and none will quench it because of your evil deeds. Repentance is the first word of the gospel. And it is a call to the believer for all things in their lives. How do we turn from rebellion? We turn from rebellion by turning to the Lord. We must repent. It's not a one-time thing. It is an everyday discipline of the Christian's life. Your life and your rebellion that you still struggle with We need to be turning to it all the more. When you get up tomorrow morning, the first thought on your mind should be, what can I repent of today? 
And then we're called to believe. Look at what he says. What is it that keeps Israel defiled in rebellion and in oppression? They do not trust in the Lord. They do not draw near to God. It's not enough to merely turn away from sin. That is legalism. Trying to make yourself acceptable in God's sight will only bring you more rebellion. But you have to turn from your sin and you must turn to the Lord who will then become your righteousness. This turning is seen in two primary ways in verse 2. It begins with trusting in the Lord. This requires a softness of heart, not a stubbornness and rebellion. It requires a, a, an, a, a fallow ground so that we're no longer looking to ourselves or looking to our sin or, or looking to our own pursuits, but we're looking to the Lord. And then secondly, it is a turning from God and a, a turning from sin, trusting in the Lord and then pursuing Him. Notice the last verse, last phrase of verse 2. She does not draw near to her God. How do we combat the rebellion? By drawing near to God. Instead of running after other gods, instead of running after other things, instead of running the rat race, running to make a name for ourselves, running to have the things of this life, running to keep up with the Joneses, instead of running after everything else but God, we cure our rebellion by running after the Lord, pursuing Him in all that we are. These two evidences of faith, trust in, pursuit of the Lord, are exactly what James tells us in James 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And what's the promise? He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. You sinners, purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. It's almost as though the same person wrote Zephaniah's words and James' words, right? It's because it is the same person, the Lord God Almighty. Zephaniah calls out to a rebellious people, a people who pride themselves on being the Lord's people, a people who pride themselves on the holy city, Jerusalem. And he indicts them as a rebellious people. Those who have turned away from him. Let me ask you today, do these words resonate with you because they indict you as well? What 
will be God's assessment of you as you've heard the word of the Lord proclaimed today? Will the announcement of woe still linger over you? Will you persist in stubbornness and continue to follow your own way and live in rebellion? Or will you listen? Will you listen to the word of the Lord? Will you repent? Turn from a life that is filled with rebellion and sin. Will you trust? Looking to the Lord who is within your gates as holy. And will you pursue Him every day of your life? The choice is before you today. Will you turn to yourself? Or will you turn to the Lord? the righteous one, and find true hope in him. You say, this is a message for people who aren't believers. This is a message for the church. May we take God's word seriously today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask you that you would take it and apply it to hearts and lives here today. May we leave this place different than when we first came in. We pray this all in.